Hello and a warm winter welcome back to Footprints. This is the last episode of this year. And this month we're bringing you up-to-date news on three grand schemes happening here in Bath. We'll take a walk into Bathhampton Meadows, one of the National Trust's 20 new green corridors. We'll find out what they are and what plans the National Trust has for the area. We'll also travel up to the top of Lansdowne to discover more about Bath Preservation Trust's project to renovate Beckford's Tower and create a new museum. But first, let's start with a newly restored swimming pool. Now, back in 1801, a new bylaw was passed, the Bathwick Water Act, and it prohibited nude bathing in the River Avon. And so was born Cleveland Pools, because the men, and they were at the start only men, had nowhere to swim. Cleveland Pools is only a short walk the other side of Sydney Gardens and has recently reopened to the public following years of planning, designing, of lottery applications and then, of course, of building works. Now, even though it will have a highly modern heat pump, that will only be switched on during the summer and the current temperature of the water is only a little over 10 degrees centigrade. But this has not deterred Bath's keen cold water swimmers and so I went off to meet some of them. But first I caught up with the manager, Sam Grief, and asked her about the project. So we are finally open for swimmers, which just makes me want to weep with joy because it's been such a long battle to get here. And the delight on people's faces when they're in that water, even though the water is now 10.5 degrees, which is pretty chilly, is phenomenal. So we're open. We still have a few bits of things to finish off. So the pontoon work is happening at the moment. And when that is finished, there will be a heat pump under the pontoon, which will heat the water up from 10.5 degrees to 24, 25 26, slightly warmer for people that prefer that kind of thing. So we're going to have a heated season, May to September, and then a cold water swimming, October through to April, every year, all year round, for everybody to come and enjoy. Fantastic. And the pontoon is also somewhere where people can come by boat, is that right? The most magical thing. So where else in the world could you arrive by boat through a Georgian city, get out and then get into the UK's oldest swimming pool? I just think that makes it such a special, magical day out. And the really pleasing thing for me so far is that almost everybody coming through the gate is coming back again. People are repeat visitors, which is what we really want because that's how we keep this place going for future generations. And you said it was the oldest pool in the country. Tell me about its history. So the pool is here because 200 years ago, the Georgian gentleman of Bath, up and coming middle class, mainly swam in the river here or in the Roman baths. Roman baths was known for being a little bit debauch. So some gentlemen preferred the river, a little bit more civilised. But then naked swimming was banned in the river because they were swimming naked. And those gents got together and essentially crowdfunded the creation of Cleveland Pools. So they all paid a subscription in order for this to be built. So that's how it came to be here. It needed to be here because it's still next to the river. And when it was first opened 200 years ago, it was just a diversion of the river. And so 
it's got this history of being connected to nature and water in Bath. And I think we've almost come full circle with that now. Because if you think about now, particularly since COVID, this whole thing about being outdoors and wild swimming in particular... And a lot of people who are coming for this cold water swimming are people who got into it during COVID. So it, it's funny how things come full circle because 40 years ago, the pool closed. And it closed because the indoor pool was built and people wanted to go and swim indoors in warmer water. And now here we are and there's this whole thing again about getting in cold water. Um, so the, the history of the pools, I think, is really important to share, whether it's why the pool is here in the first place, which is linked to the Georgian history of Bath, or why the pool closed, which is to do with trends in swimming, or why, in the Victorian era, massive galas were held here to attract local people. At one stage in the pool, there was a gentleman called Captain Evans who worked here, and he had a pet baboon which sounds ridiculous, but this was the Victorian era when there was a whole trend for what people called exotic pets. Of course, it's not appropriate, not a good thing to do. He had the baboon because he wanted to create attraction and excitement, and he wanted to get as many local people to the pools as possible, not to see the baboon, but to teach them to swim, because he'd seen people drown in the river. So his whole mission was about how many people can I get to Cleveland Pools and teach them to swim. So his idea was, I'll have a pet baboon and then they'll flock to see my pet baboon and then I'll teach them to swim. So you really can't make up the history here. And then most recently, we've had the most wonderful project called the Memory Pool, which has been about gathering people's recent memories of when the pools were last open in the late 70s and early 80s. And that's been brilliant. So we've had everything from people talking about their wedding proposal here through to the, a guy who said to me, well, I used to squat in the row of cottages near the pools in the late 70s. And I was in that squat with members of the band Hawkwind. And we used to have skinny dipping parties at the pools. So we've got the whole spectrum of memories. And it's a little... It's a little time capsule of people's teenage memories, this place. If you speak to people in Bath who are 45 years plus, they almost all have a memory of swimming here as a kid and, you know, doing their first length, bringing their jam sandwiches and sitting here for the whole day. Lots of children who used to live on the other side of the river from here, over in Lark Hall, Snow Hill, used to get in for free by swimming over the river and then hoiking over the fence and avoiding the queues on the main entrance. So... It's just a delightful place, whether you're coming for a swim or a cup of tea and a cake at the new cafe or coming to learn about the history. Or today, we've had a group of school children coming to learn about swimming textiles for the, the science part of their curriculum. So it, it's getting used now, which is great. You've told me that you like cold water swimming. I and do. as a person who doesn't like cold water swimming <laughs> how could you entice me in what what would you say to people like me who haven't ever dared really to get that cold yeah I think that's a really good question and actually we kind of anticipated that question from other people so when we opened the water was not heated artificially it just been heated by the sun it was 24 degrees because we'd had a heat wave and it's obviously got colder and colder and colder. So what we did shortly after opening is ran some cold water workshops to give people advice on what to do and what not to do. Because actually, I strongly want to encourage you to give it a go, but actually I would not encourage you to start at this time of year. The best advice I would say is come when we're heated and then keep going as the heating gets turned off. And the advice I would give you is don't stay in for too long. 
don't push yourself. There is no medal for staying in too long. Make sure that you've got lots of warm clothing, even if it's a sunny day, and that that clothing is ready for you to get straight into afterwards. Make sure that you've got a friend with you so they can look after you if you're struggling a bit to get dressed afterwards. And really buddy up with lots of other people who know what they're doing. So we've created a WhatsApp group for cold water swim buddies who've been trained by us. They're all volunteers. And they're there to buddy up with you for a swim and to help and support you and chat to you online before you give it a go so that you're doing it in a way that's really informed and safe for you. Because actually cold water swimming when done safely is completely addictive and the best thing in the world. But cold water swimming, if you've not done it properly, isn't very much fun. So you're saying it's addictive, best thing in the world. Mm. Why? What do you get from it? What are the benefits? So there's lots of research being done at the moment as the benefits of cold water swimming. There's a definite high that people get from it and that adrenaline rush. But there's also research being done in certain conditions where it seems to be helping people manage the symptoms of those conditions better. So nobody's claiming it can cure a particular illness. So one of the studies that's being done is looking into menopause. And does cold water swimming help some people manage their symptoms and it appears to do so well, it'd certainly cool you down wouldn't it yes i absolutely <laughs> would yes for sure yeah <laughs> so how can people find you oh what a lovely question we are a bit hidden away which is partly because when it was first built the georgian men who were swimming here were swimming naked so it needed to be somewhere quite discreet so for those people that know bath we are about a 20 minute walk from the center of bath along pulteney street towards the holborn museum and then towards the bathwick estate on our website which is clevelandpools.org.uk there is a page called planning your visit and on there are maps of how to find us walking directions all the local bus routes and the reason it's not mentioning parking is there isn't any we are on a really quiet residential street on the Bathwick Estate. There's no parking either at the pools or near the pools. And also, we really love our immediate neighbours and we don't want them to have lots of traffic coming onto site and there's nowhere for people to park or even drop off. So actually, a really important message is please don't drive here. If you've got a mobility issue and you have a blue badge, that's fine. There are disabled parking bays. But other than that, please don't drive. So if you want to come and have a nosy at Cleveland Pools, you are very welcome to come in for free. You only pay to come in if you swim. So if you want to come and have a look round, look at the history, visit our exhibition centre, come to the cafe, that's all free. You have to pay for your tea and cake. But you only pay if you're coming to swim. Thanks so much, Sam. That's absolutely fantastic. And what a beautiful day and a beautiful sight. And we're going to go and meet some actual swimmers now. <laughs> Siobhan, hi, you've just got out of the water. What, what was it like for you today? It was amazing today and I think the sun absolutely helps. Anything in the sun is, just feels like a holiday. I am the worst at getting in, but once <laughs> I'm in, it feels incredible. Yeah, it does. And my skin feels kind of, is, it ting, is your skin yeah. tingly? My skin feels super tingly yeah. and just really fresh, zingy. Okay, yeah. so fresh and tingly is what you get to feel. So what, what, but what makes you think, yes, today I'm going to go down to Cleveland Pool and get into a very cold water? We've been doing it for a few weeks now and I'm very aware that the, the more regularly you do it, the easier it's going to be. And I think if I stopped for a week, it would probably be harder to come back. How often do you come down here? I've been once a week for the last four or five weeks. Mm. 
I think to me it just is doing something a little bit crazy in a busy week is just feels really refreshing and good for the soul so uh, yeah I think that's why I do it I'm always glad when I have done it well I think it leaves me with a sort of feeling of being a bit invincible afterwards because you've kind of done something that was quite hard but you know not so far out of your comfort zone that it feels dangerous or anything but it yeah it sort of leaves you with a feeling like you can do hard things and and yeah I think it's really positive for the rest of the week has swimming always been a thing for you have you always loved swimming I do really like swimming but I've been fairly feeble in the sea uh, and in colder temperatures so that was my sort of motivation a bit for doing this was to kind of get a bit more used to cold water so that next summer I can stride into the sea like I've always (laughs) seen people doing (laughs) yeah and what about you, Siobhan? Are you a natural swimmer? Have you been swimming all your life? Uh, similar to Rachel, I've always loved swimming, but I've only just, in lockdown, I started outdoor swimming. And I started because I hit 50 and I couldn't have a party. So I decided to do 50 outdoor swims for my 50th. And the rule was it had to be somewhere new or somebody new. And so that was my goal and I it took me ages but it was such a nice challenge to have at a time when you couldn't do much else show me the kit that you wear because this isn't just a question of putting on a swimming costume and diving in is it oh oh my lord describe that for me so this was a birthday present from my daughter for my 50th and it's some kind of retro 50s bathing cap it's got plastic flowers all over it. Sometimes they molt. Do you know, I think my mum had one of those. Exactly. It's so 50s, isn't it? It's gorgeous. I feel amazing in it. I know I, today I, I covered my covered it with a bobble today, hat. Today you had a bobble Oh, you had a bobble hat over me. this beautiful hat. Two hats. Two hats is key. Honestly, people will tell you all the things. Do you wear wetsuits? I sometimes do, but it's much nicer if you don't because you get that real feeling on your skin and it's much quicker afterwards to get dressed I've seen people wearing gloves socks boots yes gloves socks hat or two hats essential then they have to be easy to get off afterwards again because otherwise you as I have done tie yourself literally in knots in the changing room (laughs) and what about when you get out Rachel how quickly do you get warm Um, Well, you're told to get dry and get your clothes on really quickly because I think after 10 minutes or so you can have something that's called the after drop. So you feel okay afterwards and then after a little bit of time your organs have not warmed up so you get this sensation that's called the after after drop which I think is just when you go very, very shivery. Now you're drinking something, what's that? I've got a hot chocolate. (laughs) <laughs> essential that's I think that for me is the main essential <laughs> is bringing something hot to drink afterwards this is like the carrot isn't it yeah absolutely I mean that's that isn't that one of the nicest things about it is that you're, you feel justified in having a treat afterwards and um yeah nice hot drink well done all of you I'm absolutely <laughs> amazed that you could get into such cold water thanks so much for talking to me today thanks to Sam Grief and the Cleveland Pools swimmers Beckford's tower stands tall on the top of Lansdowne, visible for miles around. It was built for William Beckford, a writer and collector and slave owner, and it's closed at the moment, shrouded in scaffolding and plastic while all kinds of major renovation works are carried out. I went up there to the next door cemetery to meet Dr Amy Frost. She's the senior curator 
at the Bath Preservation Trust and she told me all about its complex history and the current renovation project. It's a project that we've been developing for about 10 years to address quite a few things really. So Beckfast Tower is, is on their heritage at risk list as a, a building at risk. Not because we've neglected it, because we haven't, but because unless we address some issues about maintaining the building and managing the building, particularly around the impact of climate change and, and rainfall on the historic structure, unless we kind of invest what we're doing now, within 10 years' time as an organisation, we wouldn't have been able to afford to look after it. So it's really a project in terms of conservation that's addressing making the building more sustainable moving to air source heat pump, putting solar panels on the flat roof, replacing some of the timber at the top of the building, addressing the fact that historic buildings are just not designed for the level of very, very heavy kind of hour and a half of torrential rain that we now see. But it's also about how we tell the story of Beckford and Beckford's story is very complex. It's very challenging. He's not a person that you immediately like and actually you probably shouldn't like him but there is sometimes an empathy that you can feel so Beckford you know moves to Bath in 1822 builds the tower in 1826 to 1827 from an obscene amount of wealth that he's had in his entire life all of which comes from the ownership of sugar plantations in Jamaica so this kind of really quite disgusting wealth that the, that the Beckfords had is all from the profits of enslavement and, and transatlantic slavery. And Beckford uses that wealth. That wealth gives him a kind of a privilege and it gives him a power and it's a power that he abuses. So he, you know, he, he creates a collection that has beautiful objects in it. He commissions the very best artists and makers. He builds beautiful buildings and, and landscapes that we can see as beautiful but we have to always balance that against you know the power that he's abusing because of his claiming in ownership of enslaved Africans and enslaved people and a power that he abuses even in his personal relationships and particularly in the the relationship that he had with William Courtney of Powderham Castle in in Devon which was an abusive relationship so so you know this project is allowing us to work with a lot of other people, listen to a lot of other people, our local communities, our, you know, people who have lived experience of some of the, the narratives and use their voices or have their voices tell some of that story through the museum. So we're kind of redesigning the museum. But a big part of it as well has been about putting the building back in its landscape. So, you know, not just the immediate landscape where we're standing in, in Lansdowne Cemetery, but also the wider landscape, the wider Bath landscape, and, and look at how we tell that story as well. There's a huge conversation going on at the moment around how we tell the stories of, well, particularly things that we find beautiful but have been created out of wealth of the transatlantic slave trade. What do you think are the main kind of arguments for, for how we deal with that? I think it's really important to remember that this is, this is a story that has always been there. This is a history that's always been there. It just hasn't been told enough and it hasn't been amplified enough. And, you know, we are not taking away anyone's history. 
we're giving people more. We're giving people more history, more stories, more information. And I think that's really, really important to understand the place we're in and, and you know, the immediate place we're in, but Bath as well. I mean, absolutely pivotal to understanding Bath's history is the connection of Bath and colonialism. It's fundamental. You know, when we open the, reopen the doors of the tower in spring 2024, that's not the end of the project. That's the beginning of how we continue to talk to people, listen, change the display, tell new stories, do new research. But if we just look at Beckford Tower that everyone will know because it's on the top of Lansdowne. It's currently covered up in plastic. But what, what did he build it for? It's not a folly. I think people often think, oh, it was a folly. And, and a folly really is something that sole function is to sit in a landscape and be viewed. I mean, this had a very definite purpose for him. It was his escape. It was where he came to get away from Georgian society, where he came to get away from Bath. Where he came so he could sit and feel like he was in the middle of a landscape rather than in, in, in an urban setting. And it's where he kept his objects and his collection and... and Intensely private, very, very few people ever visited here. And the, the garden as well. So what's now Lansdowne Cemetery was the tower's private garden. You know, it was his safe space, which is really problematic because we also want to make it a safe space for all our visitors. But some of the stories that we have, we know might be upsetting or emotionally triggering. So, you know, we have to take care of our visitors as best we can and... and you know, make mistakes and learn from them, which is which is you know part of of the development that we're going through. So it was it was his sort of escape from a world that had increasingly rejected him as well. So he was socially exiled from Britain because he he was bisexual, and that stays with him for the rest of his life. The fact that he's he's a social outcast. So it was, it was a place for him to escape. It was a place where he found comfort, which it still is for a lot of people today. I mean, this landscape is so important to so many people in Bath. Despite the fact that we're next to the very, very busy road, it can be quite peaceful and it can be quite quiet. And we're here in the cemetery, and I believe he's buried in this cemetery, is he? He is, he's just over there. So um, a big pink granite box on an island that he designed himself and built before he died. So... There's a whole story even in that, you know, even the post-Beckford story up here is just as interesting, really, about the way that the Victorians kind of celebrated death and how that then changes after the First World War to a much more sombre commemoration of death in terms of memorials. So, And Beckford's tomb is quite unusual. So he, he dies in 1844 and he is entombed above ground, which actually by that time was quite unusual but that also says quite a lot about him who, who else is up here amy do we know anyone else yeah so there's quite a few so the hoban family tomb is up here so sir william hoban's tomb henry edmund goodridge who was the architect of breakfast tower and cleveland bridge and the corridor other places in bath the architect james wilson who designed um st stephen's on lansdowne road and the royal high school and kingswood school so another a key bath victorian architect and then we also have some Commonwealth War graves. One of the key Bath kind of notable historical figures buried up here is Sarah Graham, so Elizabeth Clark McFall, who was the first female mayor of, of Bath and a real campaigner, actually, for women's rights and women's education. So she was an incredible woman. So, you know, we're really 
proud of the fact that you know her memorial is up here as well although it's a very kind of subtle memorial it's not at all um showy so there's interesting people there's also quite interesting designs of memorials and you start at the tower and and walk towards bath through the cemetery and you essentially walk through how our way of commemorating death changes from the victorian period onwards so um yeah it's a really fascinating place you mentioned the road, the very, very busy road that goes over Lansdowne. But turning round the other way, it's stunning view, isn't it? Going miles to the to the south, is it? Yeah, and and you know this view that that looks sort of south across Bath or across West Bath, across Western, down towards Somerset. I mean, on a good day, you can see Alfred's Tower at Stourhead in the distance, and then you know west over to. Wales and and on a really good day from the top of the tower you can see the Severn Bridge so it's this view which is the reason why Beckford builds the tower here and it's a landscape that kind of you're always discovering something different if you walk it at different times of year I mean this footpath that runs just below Lansdowne Cemetery I mean in the pandemic it was like the M25 of Bath with walkers and it doesn't matter how many times you walk it the weather is always different, the view is always different, the temperature is always different, so you're kind of always experiencing it new. It never grows old. Well, thank you so much for telling me this rich history of Beckford's Tower and the complex life of William Beckford himself. Oh, you're welcome. And, yeah, come back once the scaffolding is down and the tower reopens in, in March next year. Thanks to Amy Frost. Now... Picture a beautiful wetland, a grassy meadow sitting just below Salisbury Hill, down by the River Avon, and you're with me in the sunshine at Bathampton Meadows. Acquired by the National Trust a couple of years ago, it's one of their 20 green corridors, an ambitious scheme knitting together green space, woodlands, towpaths and parks. Let's find out more. I'm Joanna Rolfe and I'm a project manager with the National Trust and I look after the Bathampton Meadows. And we're just about to go over the footbridge into Bathampton Meadows, so from the car park and yeah. opposite Robbie's Fish Bar, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, just to set the scene. So as we walk, just tell us a little bit about Bathampton Meadows. So Bathampton Meadows is a really beautiful green space that runs from Bath Easton and it sort of skirts the villages of Bath Easton, Bathampton and, and Bath Ford. And then the land that the National Trust actually own takes in these fields in Bath Easton and then over Mill Lane, then we have another three fields that take you up to sort of Grosvenor Bridge. So it takes you on a green corridor, really, from these villages into more central Bath. And this is a new acquisition for the National Trust, is that right? Yeah, we've had it for, for two years. Absolutely delighted to have this area. I'm a local girl, I'm actually from Bath Eastern, so, you know, when we heard that the National Trust had taken it over, even before I worked for them, what a relief to have, a, you know, a charity such as the Trust looking after this land. And it had been threatened to be a park and ride for, for a really, really long time, so 
So now that we know that it's protected and looked after and going to remain a green space is, is really exciting. The local community really fought to save this land. There were a few organisations, I think predominantly the Bathampton Meadows Alliance, were a group of local people that got together and, and really rallied to save it. There was another group called the Friends of the Meadows and they were a group who came and looked after it and actually quite a lot of the planting that you see is and the benches are things that they put in themselves. So it's it's a real community space. The people that come here and use it, they they really love it. And there's a lot of ownership, you know, a lot of love that you can feel from them into this space. So we've crossed the bridge and we're now looking over the meadows, which are beautifully wet from the rain, <laughs> across to, where are we looking across to? Up to Claverton and actually the skyline. So the, the National Trust Walk is up in that direction. Uh, if you look over to the um, left, you see Brown's Folly and up towards Barford. And then obviously behind us is Bath Easton and then you get to see Claverton Down. And as you walk a bit further along the meadows, you actually get a view up to Salisbury Hill as well. So really beautiful views all around the valleys. And then actually as you go up the valleys, you have a really beautiful view down onto the meadows. It's so open and there's a huge expanse of it. I recognise this because this is part of the circuit of Bath, isn't it? So every time we do that in yeah. September for Julian House, we walk along here. Oh, and I've lovely. noticed these sculptures or plaques yeah. that have obviously been made by the local community on the fence. Do you know anything about them? Yeah, that's um, the local school, so Bath Eastern Primary School. And it's great for people to walk in and see what the children sort of represent of animals and wildlife they've seen or they'd like to see, you know, here. And tell me about what a wildlife corridor is, because I think that was one of the main reasons for trying to get this land, is to have a wildlife corridor. Tell me about that. Yeah, for the National Trust, we have a programme of green corridors. So that is really trying to secure land that runs as a corridor from a city or a town out to green and open space. And that allows people from the villages to be able to walk off the road into the centre of Bath and also for people from Bath to walk out using that green space that's great, isn't it, to have that sort of rural feel as you walk into the city. But it's also for wildlife, is that right? One of the key things, one of, well, one of the key animals down here is the bats, and they nest at Brown's Folly, but they feed along the river. One of the projects that the rangers have started and the volunteers have started is improving the hedgerows. So there are quite a few gaps in the hedgerows at the moment, but what we'll be doing over the next few years is um, like a, a traditional method of cutting the existing hawthorn and laying it you cut it to 80% and lay it and then it will re-sprout and then it will start to grow up and it gives you more width and more height and then the rangers and the volunteers have been planting hundreds of native small trees and bushes within that hedgerow to really build it out and that will really help the um, the species of bats to come down and feed and by having this green corridor and improving the habitat all the way along to Bath that encourages more wildlife to be able to flow through that whole area. 
So it links it all up and joins yeah. the dots. Yeah. So tell me about what you've got planned for this area. What's the National Trust going to do? The first thing that we needed to do was really see how the land fared through all the seasons. You know, it's a floodplain, so it was really important for us to see actually how often the water comes in, where it collects, what impact that has. So we have been able to carry out some baseline surveys. So our rangers and volunteers have done some soil samples. They've taken some baseline numbers of birds, bats, fungi and plants. So when we've got that baseline survey, we can then see what, what we're looking at and what needs to be introduced for us to be able to improve the habitats. We also carried out some archaeological surveys. So we had an organisation come down to carry out some magnetometry across the whole land. So we're just waiting for those reports to come back in. So you never know, we, we may have a Roman villa underneath some of these fields, we'll see. And some uh, paleo-environmental surveys were carried out as well, in which some soil samples were taken close to the river. They take those away and then they review them for pollens Samples so they can see what plants were growing here back over the last thousands of years. So it'd be really interesting to see what comes out of those. We've been working with a local organisation called Bristol Avon Rivers Trust, so BART, and they have carried out a lot of hydrological surveys for us. We want to see whether we can introduce potentially some more wetland areas. So you've got all these projects going on. So we know that biodiversity is something we really need to pay attention to. Is that something that you're working on here? Yeah, definitely. So I've mentioned the potential creation of additional wetlands, which creates this really rich habitat. But other things that we can do are sow in some wildflower seed within some of the fields to create wildflower meadows. That obviously encourages a wider range of, of habitat and insects, mammals, birds, etc., etc. We'd really love to plant some more trees. I mean, we'd really love to have a, a community orchard within the meadows as well so we have a lot of ideas of ways that we can really just enhance and develop the natural beauty of the land to try and make as much of it as we can really increase those habitats and try to get as, as much wildlife down here as we can fabulous and also with the meadows, it's really amazing that the council have a Bath River Line project. So they're improving the river walk through Central Bath and to the other side. So the meadows will link in with that. But Cleveland Pools is just up the road from us. And that's great. Actually, our volunteers help them and their volunteers come to help us. So we have a real joined up approach. The Avon Wildlife Trust Reserve is just behind us there, which although people aren't allowed in there, we're hoping to have these connections with them because that is such a beautiful like habitat rich site in there so if we can get even a little bit of that real biodiversity that they have along to our side of the meadows yeah that would be fantastic so heaps of connections if people want to get involved in the national trust i know they can join as members but they can also go on the website and see how to become a volunteer 
maybe here at Bathampton Meadows, but certainly in other places that you manage? Yeah, certainly. If they go onto the website, there'll be links on there on how they can join us as a volunteer. Myself and Sarah, the community ranger, are just working on the events that we'll have down on the meadows for next year. So if they are coming to the meadows, have a look on the notice boards because we'll be posting posters of all of the details of those. Thanks there to Joanna Roll from the National Trust. Well, that's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you for joining me and don't forget you can listen to all the previous episodes anytime you like and please share as widely as you can with friends, family and colleagues. For more information on Bathscape visit the website bathscape.co.uk and thanks to the National Lottery Heritage Fund and players of the National Lottery for supporting our work. Footprints was hosted, produced by me, Pommy Harmer and I'll see you next year.